Welcome to season two of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. It's still irreverent. It's still weird. It's still the show that you love to tolerate. Thanks for listening. Welcome to episode 35 of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. I'm Kyle. Yet still, after all this time, nearly, what are we at, about nine, eight, nine months of this show, still the host, week after week after week after week. Guys, what's up? How's it going? Oh boy, this is going to be an interesting show. Not just because I enjoy the content uh, within the show, which I do a great deal But I'm going to be making this show on pure adrenaline and lack of sleep. So get ready for this nonsense. Get ready for this nonsense. Guys, this week we conclude the triumvirate of the United States uh, early 60s to late 60s into the 70s space program. In particular, starting with Project Mercury, moving into Project Gemini, and then moving into Project Apollo, or the Apollo program as it is more often known as... And we're going to talk about how Apollo fits in this entire thing, uh, what Apollo was all about, what they used, and how they eventually got to the moon. Put a man on the moon. If you believe they put a man on the moon, and you should, because it definitely, absolutely happened, of course. So, without further ado, you guys, you girls, you lads, you lasses, anything that you may identify yourself as. Everyone here, prepare yourself for part three of the space program. Guys, episode 35, the Apollo program. Stick with me. guys the final episode of this month's uh space culmination project apollo better known as the apollo program uh i can't do this intro any more uh justice than uh to play this clip here quick now before we really get into this this little and we're going to kind of intersperse a clip or two here there for for this particular episode because the apollo program is so important and so crazy uh in, in history uh it's it's and fortunately it's one of the things that is so contemporary i mean not necessarily 100% contemporary obviously it just didn't happen yesterday but it is something that is recent enough that we have you know audio and video footage of the entirety of the program including you know JFK talking about wanting to go to the moon and guys actually going to the moon and and everything in between so it's a it's a wealth of information and a wealth of stuff that we can look back on and uh, be proud of as uh, human beings in general, just because going to the move is insane. But if you've been listening to the podcast here in the last couple of weeks, and if you haven't, I encourage you to do so. Um, go back and listen to Project Mercury and Project Gemini to get the basis 
of the United States space program from the very beginning to see kind of how we got to this point. But if you want to go all the way back to the very beginning of, you know, the Project Mercury and and, and everything that went into this is crazy uh, endeavor to shoot men off the surface of the Earth and make them land on a different celestial body, even if it is as unimpressive as our own satellite, which is still, you know, in, in, in cosmic terms, extremely unimpressive, but in mankind terms, the fact that, you know, barely 60, 70 years before this, man had just learned how to fly, you know, off the ground, and now all of a sudden they were in space is is, is, is pretty crazy. Um, to go all the way back, I want to play a clip from uh, then-President John F. Kennedy making his, um, making his speech about why it's important and why it's a good thing and why it's so great to aspire for greatness, to aspire to go to the moon, to do something like the Americans were planning on doing. So here's a clip real quick of John F. Kennedy speaking about going to the moon. Surely the opening vistas of space promise high costs and hardships as well as high reward. So it is not surprising that some would have us stay where we are a little longer to rest, to wait. But this city of Houston, this state of Texas, this country of the United States was not built by those who waited and rested and wished to look behind them. For the eyes of the world now look into space, to the moon and to the planets beyond. And we have vowed that we shall not see it governed by a hostile flag of conquest, but by a banner of freedom and peace. We have vowed that we shall not see space filled with weapons of mass destruction, but with instruments of knowledge and understanding. We set sail on this new sea because there is new knowledge to be gained and new rights to be won, and they must be won and used for the progress of all people. There is no strife, no prejudice, no national conflict in outer space as yet. Its hazards are hostile to us all. Its conquest deserves the best of all mankind and its opportunity for peaceful cooperation may never come again. But why, some say, the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. Many years ago, the great British explorer George Mallory, who was to die on Mount Everest 
was asked why did he want to climb it. He said because it is there. Well, space is there. And we're going to climb it. And the moon and the planets are there. And new hopes for knowledge and peace are there. And therefore, as we set sail, we ask God's blessing on the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure on which man has ever embarked. The man certainly had a way with words. Uh, it is probably one of the reasons why he is one of the most popular presidents that has ever, ever been in the office of said presidency. Unfortunately, his presidency was cut short the next year, about a year and change later uh, when he was assassinated. But very fortunately for him and for all of us, uh, President Johnson uh, was able to make his vision come to reality and and not only make it come to reality but also encourage it to do so in the first place it would have been very easy this entire time to stop doing something like that just because of something as tragic as uh president kennedy's assassination you know this is kind of uh this was kind of his baby from the very beginning and it would have been very easy to uh scrap the entire thing you know just because of the situation but very fortunately that is not the case and we bring ourselves to now Project Apollo. Now, originally, uh, Kennedy made this speech. Now, he made an, an original one the year before in May of 1961, the very first one in Congress. He actually made a speech saying, hey, we should go to the moon. This is just a little bit after uh, Project Mercury had started and the, the Soviets were doing what they were doing. Go back to our Project Mercury episode to get a little bit more background on that. But anyhow... The space race was basically on, and Kennedy said, well, I don't care. We're going to go to the moon. We're not just going to put a man in space. We're not just going to put you know, a man around the Earth a couple times, whatever. We're going to go to the goddamn moon. We're going to do it. So he makes that speech in Congress in 1961. Then in 1962, uh, he makes the speech that you all just heard. And uh, by that point, we had you know gone into space with Project Mercury, and we were doing what we needed to do. And originally, Project Apollo was the actual successor to Project Mercury. Um, of course, Project Gemini came in between. Project Gemini, of course, being the uh, redheaded stepchild of the space program that they didn't really... Uh, it was the hero that they didn't uh, deserve, or whatever the quote is from Batman. Basically, Gemini was the thing that the, the U.S. didn't really know it needed, but it definitely did need and paved the way for... Uh, an effective space flight from all the things that they they learned from you know uh, spending extended time in space, uh, spending time outside of their capsules, and doing maneuvers with uh, docking of different uh, uh, things in space, different craft uh, docking together. All those things would come in handy when it came to Project Apollo and getting not just off of the Earth, but from the Earth to the Moon, landing on the Moon, and then getting off of the Moon and getting back to Earth safely. So how did NASA attend to achieve this lofty goal? Now remember, while they're developing these plans, Project Mercury is still in effect. So the things that we're talking about when Project Gemini, like the uh, docking maneuvers that they were doing in Earth orbit, didn't even happen yet. They they hadn't happened yet. They, they weren't really known. And it was really thought of to be extremely complicated and extremely difficult to pull off. So at first... At first, in the original uh, Apollo ideas, 
the idea was to do what's called a direct ascent landing. Now, this would have involved shooting a rocket off the Earth, a very, very large, very powerful rocket off the Earth, and just shooting it straight towards the moon. No orbiting, no parking, none of that stuff. It's just shoot that thing at the moon and go for it. Um, and then literally take a giant spacecraft rocket thing and land directly on the moon in one piece and then shoot off the moon when you're done and come back to Earth. Now, this is a very simple uh, idea, and originally it was the one that a lot of people were advocating for and wanting to do. Unfortunately, it would take an extremely powerful uh, launch vehicle to get off the ground, and as over time, from you know Project Mercury and, and eventually Project Gemini, figuring out that, that it wasn't the, the hardest thing ever uh, to dock things, they figured, okay, this is going to take way too many resources to make work and too many things could go wrong, so we're going to scrap this idea entirely. Then there was the idea of the Earth Orbit Rendezvous, or the EOR, which would have launched a bunch of stuff into space, um, some saying up to 15 different items, uh, according to some plans, which would then carry parts of a direct ascent spacecraft. They would put them all together in space and then send those to... Uh, to the moon. Now, this was uh, a popular idea during Project Gemini because obviously we started to figure out that we could dock things in space and that it was uh, very easy to figure out how to do this in Earth orbit. Now, we'd, we'd made a lot of Earth orbits. We kind of figured out the uh, the technique with Earth Earth's gravity and, and everything that you know needed to happen, that this was a popular idea for a while, but it also was scrapped in favor of the lunar Orbit Rendezvous, or LOR, and this is the one that they would eventually uh, settle on as the one that would be uh, successful with landing on the moon. You would uh, take a single Saturn V rocket, Saturn V being the rocket types that you would work on uh, for the Apollo missions. Uh, a Saturn V rocket would launch into space, and it would carry a two-part craft, the lunar landing module and the command module, and they would go to the moon. And then the lunar landing module would detach from the command module. It would land on the surface by itself. The men would do what they needed to do on the surface. And then the very top part of the lunar module would launch back into orbit of the moon, where the waiting command module would dock with it. And then they would do an orbit of the moon, slingshot themselves back to Earth, where they would return uh, safely in a usual uh, idea where they would do the uh, the splashdown with the parachutes and everything like that. So that's the uh, uh, general idea of how they came across, how they should build a spacecraft that could make it to the moon and get men there safely. So as this was going on, obviously Project Mercury and Project Gemini were still taking place and uh, things were being figured out, things were being discovered, and it looked like we had a direct line to the moon. Now, if you remember when I was talking about, there was basically no failed Mercury missions um, besides a couple of snafus here and there with some of the low Earth orbit stuff and whatever. And with Gemini, there were also no failed missions either in that span of time. And um, the only real tragedy during the Gemini program was uh, one of the flight crews during some flight training on Earth that was uh, uh, intended for one of the Gemini missions all up. Uh, were killed during an accident and one of the backup crews had to take it in but the actual Gemini program didn't have any failures to launch so to speak so now we get to the Apollo missions we're on the third stretch here we're going to actually start to put three men inside it's kind of an easy one two three from Mercury 
being one guy, Jim and I being two people, and the Apollo missions having three men who would uh, eventually make their way to the moon. So how are we going to make our way to the moon? We have to design not only a, a carrier craft that's going to be um, able to carry these men to their destination and get them back home, just like the Gemini craft, but we're also going to have to design a, a module that can actually land on the moon and sit on the moon and be successful. So what would that look like? Well, the command module was the conical crew cabin, and if you've seen anything ever um, in life, if you've ever watched the movie Apollo 13, if you've ever seen anything that has to do with space in general in the last you know 50 years, you're not living under a moon rock, you will know what this looks like. It's a conical crew cabin designed to carry three astronauts from launch to lunar orbit and then eventually back to Earth on an ocean landing. It was the only component of the Apollo spacecraft to survive without major configuration changes, of course, because when you're launching these rockets, you're always discarding stages and you're getting rid of this stuff here and there. And with the lunar lander, obviously, you're you're getting rid of half of it just on the moon and then you're getting rid of the rest of it um, when the men transfer their way back into it. A cylindrical service module, which is sort of the, the the middle portion, if you're looking at a picture of a command module, you have the conical top, you have the cylindrical service module in the middle, then you have a rocket booster on the back, supported the command module with a service propulsion engine and RCS with propellants, and a fuel cell power generation system using liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen reactants to make it go. Now, these were all designed to be somewhat aerodynamic and able to, you know, maneuver around and uh, go through Earth's atmosphere, uh, both out of it and back into it, whereas the lunar module, which the men used to land on the moon, was designed to descend from lunar orbit and land two astronauts in the moon and then take them back um, to rendezvous with the command module in a lunar orbit, and it was not designed to fly through Earth's atmosphere ever. So, because of this, its fuselage was designed totally without any aerodynamic considerations at all it just looks like a little like spider person and was of an extremely lightweight construction because it didn't have to be heavy and crazy you're only landing on a on a a celestial body with one-sixth the gravity of your native earth so it didn't have to be as strong which was good because we can make it lighter and make it easier to launch into space uh, underneath one of the Saturn rockets It consisted of separate descent and ascent stages, like we talked about, each with its own engine. The descent stage contained storage for descent propellant, surface stay consumables for a day or two or maybe more, and surface exploration equipment like the lunar rovers and things of that nature. The ascent stage, the one that goes up, contained the crew cabin, ascent propellant, and a reaction control system. The initial lunar model, mo- mo- lunar module model, Jesus, the words, weighed approximately 33,300 pounds or about 15,000 kilos for my European friends and Canadian friends and allowed surface stays for up to 34 hours. Later on, an extended lunar module weighed a few uh, pounds more, 36,000 to be uh, exact total, 16.4 kilos. Um, in the thousands and allowed surface stays of up to three days on the moon's surface. This was uh, designed and contracted to Grumman Aircraft Engineering Corporation, which is a part of the Northrop Grumman team, and they were the ones that built this lunar module. Now, we're thinking about how to get those things into space, and I just had mentioned already the Saturn V rocket. That was the one that would eventually take the Apollo spacecraft uh, to the moon. Um 
but how did they get there originally? Remember, we were talking about the Atlas rockets with Mercury and the Titan rockets with uh, Gemini. The Saturn rocket was developed for the Apollo program, and it went through little stages. Uh, they went through the Little Joe rocket at the very beginning, much like Mercury had their Little Joe rocket. This was just used for uh, low Earth orbit flights to test getting components up into space. Uh, the Saturn 1, Saturn 1B rockets were both tested to get components in the space as well, and they were uh, they were a little bit smaller and did carry manned missions at the very beginning of this of the uh, Apollo program, and then the Saturn 5 is the the main dude, the main rocket that is getting your guys into orbit. The Saturn V is this gigantic, many stories tall, hundreds of feet tall rocket, very powerful, and it was used to uh, to get men to the moon. In particular, the Saturn V was first used for the Apollo 11 mission, which, of course, as we all remember, is the mission that first got men to the moon. Now... Let's talk about these this 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 mission in particular. How are they going to plan this mission? How are they going to do this insane feat that they are going to be able to pull off? So the mission sort of proceeds as follows. First, you launch the three Saturn V stages because it's a three-stage rocket. They burn for about 11 minutes to achieve a 100 nautical mile circular parking orbit around the Earth. The third stage burns a small portion of his fuel to achieve this orbit. You then begin the translunar injection, which is a big fancy word saying you're going to shoot the rocket towards the moon. After one to two orbits to verify readiness of spacecraft systems, the third stage reignites for about six minutes to send the spacecraft directly to the moon. Then you have transposition and docking, the first one. The spacecraft lunar module adapter panels separate to free this, the command module and expose the lunar module. So they pop that thing open, they turn around 180 degrees, and then the transposition and docking uh, part two happens where the command module actually docks with the lunar module. And the third stage of the Saturn V falls away. The lunar voyage takes between two and three days. Uh, Mid-course corrections are made as necessary using the little engine. You then reach lunar orbit insertion, which is when you actually reach the moon and start your orbit there, about 60 miles um, behind the moon and above the moon. They circularize, circularize, I suppose you could say, this orbit by first making an elliptical orbit around and then powering to make a circular orbit around the moon. They then rest for a second while they power up the landing gear and everything on the lunar module. And the rest is history. They land the lunar module, do what they have to do, shoot the lunar module's uh, sent uh, thing back up onto uh, into the moon's orbit, which redocks with the command module. Um, and then they, you know, use the thrust uh, left in the command module's uh, mission boat, lifeboat, I guess you could say. And they shoot uh, a slingshot around the moon to achieve a trans-Earth injection, just like we said, a trans-lunar injection. Now we are headed back to Earth for a trans-Earth injection where you make your way back to Earth, which takes another day or two to get back to Earth. And you uh, separate the command module, which is this, that little cone thing. You go in the atmosphere and everything is history after that. So great. We have this plan. How are we going to take the plan and turn it into actual reality. Well, of course, we're trying to design this uh, command module to begin with, 
and the very first um, testing of the uh, Apollo Command module was the very unfortunate, and we could probably do an episode on this one completely if we wanted to, but we're just going to cover it very briefly here, the tragic fire that that took place during the Apollo 1 testing. Now, um, Apollo 1 was never intended to be a thing that actually launched into space. In particular, it was uh, originally supposed to be a low Earth orbital test, just like we were talking about in the Mercury program, where you just kind of launched up to a very... Uh, like a 60 mile or so height, and then come back to the Earth. This is very typical of Project Mercury and Gemini. They both did the same exact thing. You basically take a small rocket and you do a a, a low Earth orbit test just to make it go up and make sure everything is, is good to go there. You have it come back down. It takes a few minutes. It's not a huge deal. The pilots, the crew for Apollo 1 were a, were guys that you have heard the names of already in the last two episodes uh, Gus Grissom, basically the face of NASA at this point. Uh, Ed White, the man who made the first um, spacewalk, uh, uh, the extra you know vehicular action, and then Rod- Roger B. Chaffee, who also was part of uh, the Gemini program as well. So you have three guys who are basically like like the dudes. They are the astronauts. These guys are all well-known at this point. Uh, Gus Grissom, especially being a Mercury veteran as well as a Gemini veteran, um, it's a big deal. You know, this is Apollo. This is our way to get to the moon. So during Apollo 1, they do what's called a sort of a dress rehearsal on the ground uh, to make sure that everything is going to uh, work out okay. And unfortunately... Things don't go okay. Um, the way it reads is they're they're basically all three of the men don their spacesuits and get into the Apollo One command module. The launch simulation starts on January twenty seventh of nineteen sixty seven on pad thirty four with a plugs out test to determine whether the spacecraft would operate nominally on simulated internal power while detached from all cables and umbilicals. Basically, can the capsule run on its own power? Passing this test was essential to making the February 21st launch date, which is about a month later, where they would actually do the low-Earth orbit launch. The test originally, apparently, was considered non-hazardous because neither the launch vehicle nor the spacecraft was loaded with fuel or cryogenics, and all pyrotechnic systems, uh, the explosive bolts, were disabled. At about 1 p.m. Eastern on January 27th, Grissom, Chaffee, and then Ed White entered the command module fully pressure-suited and were strapped into their seats and hooked up to the spacecraft's oxygen and communication systems. Grissom immediately noticed a strange odor in the air circulating through his suit, which he compared to sour buttermilk, and the simulated countdown was held at 1.20 p.m. while air samples were taken. No cause of the odor could be found, and the countdown was resumed at 2.42 p.m. later on. Three minutes after the count was resumed, the hatch installation was started. The hatch consisted of three parts. A removable inner hatch, which stayed inside the cabin, a hinged outer hatch, which was part of the spacecraft's heat shield, and an outer hatch cover on that, which is part of the boost protective cover enveloping the entire command module to protect it from aerodynamic heating during launch and then during uh, descent afterwards. The boost hatch cover was partially but not fully latched in place because the flexible boost protective cover was slightly distorted by some cabling running under it 
to provide the simulated internal power because they weren't actually hooked up to uh, uh, any of the actual crazy rocket power that they were going to be using. Anyhow, movement by the astronauts was detected by the spacecraft's inertial measurement unit and the astronauts' biomedical sensors and also indicated uh, by increases in oxygen spacesuit flow and sounds from Grissom's stuck-open microphone. There is no evidence to identify the movement or whether it was related to what was about to happen next. And what happened next during the countdown uh, uh, succession to doing the actual mission uh, as the crew members were using their time to run through their uh, checklists one more time, a momentary increase in one of the alternate current buses and its voltage occurred. Nine seconds later, one of the astronauts, um, some people think it was Gus Grissom, it's tough to uh, tough to tell uh, by the radio transmission because this is the 60s and also crazy shit's happening. The voice exclaims, hey, or fire, followed by two seconds of scuffling sounds through uh, Grissom's open mic, uh, quoted as saying maybe, quote, they're fighting a bad fire, let's get out, open her up, we've got a bad fire, let's get out, we're burning up, or I'm reporting a bad fire, I'm trying to get out. This transmission um, from some people either believing to be Grissom or Ed White, it was tough to tell, lasting five seconds and ended with a cry of pain. What happened was there was a fire inside the command module which burned these three men alive, killing all three of them and basically sacking the Apollo 1 program in a terrible, awful tragedy, killing three men who were were veterans of the space program and basically the face of the space program in a terrible, terrible, awful way. Can you imagine being stuck in a basically an oven? All things considered and being roasted alive and not being able to do anything because of it. Now, this happened and it was intense as it was because, like we talked about in the past two episodes as well, the old modules were using these pure oxygen uh, uh, chambers where the only thing in them was just the pressurized oxygen because it was lighter and easier to launch uh, into space, you know, doing what you had to do. This came to a head here in Apollo 1, and obviously I sort of foreshadowed it in those uh, two episodes that this would be what the eventual tragedy that would happen when it comes to these these pressurized, fully oxygenated chambers. Uh, anytime there was any sort of spark, you know oxygen and fire just fucking love each other, and all it took was that little uh, spark and uh, AC bus voltage increase, and boom, fire, uncontrollable fire happening. And unfortunately, the escape hatch wasn't made to be very user-friendly. It was basically made to keep you inside because you didn't want something blowing out in space. And the men were trapped inside the module and were killed because of it. Now, when you hear about an awful tragedy like this, and it had all the makings of a perfect program-killing tragedy, you're starting your third a uh, space program that is meant to get them into the moon. You're using three of the most well-known and respected astronauts. You go into a test. It's the very first Apollo command module test, and it ends in a fiery death for three of the men that the nation admired most. This seems like something that would really, really take down your program, and it almost did if it weren't for President Johnson, who was now the president of the United States in 19... Um, 67 after uh, having been elected, you know, after having taken over for Kennedy for his first term, was very staunch in his support 
of the Apollo program and being as influential as he was not only as president, but as a senator before he was president, had a lot of clout when it came to giving talks about this sort of thing and helped to blow over the political uh, terribleness that happened because of the Apollo 1 launch. Eventually, this led to some changes in the men's suits, the hatches, and they started to use a sort of a, a an oxygen-nitrogen mixture instead of pure oxygen um, because we now had enough thrust to get men out of you know Earth orbit with the Saturn V rockets and everything that we were going to be using. They figured out that using a nitrogen-oxygen mixture was a lot safer and this, that, and the other thing. So there were improvements. Obviously, quality improvements were made during this tragedy, but it almost derailed the Apollo program before it even was able to get started. Now, the Apollo missions then launched a few um, unmanned missions all the way up through Apollo 6, which are basically just testing all the different components of the Apollo missions up into Earth orbit. And then Apollo 7 was the first manned mission into the Apollo program, the very first mission to actually carry men up into space in the Apollo uh, style where they were going to try to figure out how they were going to finally get to the moon. Apollo 7 was launched on October 11th of 1968. Um, it was an 11-day Earth orbital flight which tested the command module systems. Apollo 8 was then launched in December of 1968, and this ended up being one of the boldest missions by NASA. They knew that the lunar module wasn't ready yet, and they were going to do some lunar module testing, but they got word that the Soviet Union had actually been doing their own lunar missions uh, under the Luna program, which we might speak about here a little bit later. Uh, the Soviet Union never landed men on the moon, but that doesn't mean that the Soviet Union didn't send things to the moon. And at this point, as a part of their Zond 5 program, um, the Soviet Union had sent two tortoises, mealworms, wine flies, and other life forms around moon the moon's orbit in September of 1968, so a few months earlier. And people feared that the Soviets were going to reach the moon with human cosmonauts before the uh, United States was going to be able to reach them with astronauts. So they decided to push Apollo 8 forward and have it actually go and orbit the moon, which they successfully did. Jim and I veterans Frank Borman and Jim Lovell, who you'll hear about again, and rookie William Anders made this flight and captured the world's attention by making 10 lunar orbits in 20 hours, transmitting television pictures of the lunar service for the first time on Christmas Eve of 1968 and then returning safely to Earth. The following March, lunar module flight rendezvous and docking were successfully demonstrated in Earth orbit on Apollo 9, uh, which was able to take care of that situation and finally developing you know, the docking maneuvers and the capabilities of the lunar module. And then, of course, um, Apollo 10 took men back to the moon but didn't actually land them on the moon where they were orbiting around the moon um, in May of 1969 by Gemini veterans Thomas Stafford, John Young, and Eugene Cernan. They took the lunar module within 50,000 feet of the lunar surface. Now, isn't that crazy? Like, when you think about Apollo 11, knowing that Apollo 11 is the first time the men actually make it to the room, how crazy is it that we are still so close to the moon and yet so far away? I can only imagine some of these astronauts in the early Apollo programs, you know, guys who, some of whom would eventually walk on the moon in later Apollo 
missions, but some of whom would never walk on the moon. They would literally go around the moon's surface. They would be right there. They literally took the entire mission up to that point where they launched off the Earth, orbited around the Earth, shot to the moon, and they were at the moon. These guys took a three-day journey in deep space. You know, they were there was nothing protecting them at all. Made it all the way to the moon, orbited around it. They were looking at it. They were close. And yet they never were able to land. That just is the, the craziest thing to me to think about. Um, some of these astronauts who obviously were just the ballsiest people on planet Earth, you know, not able, some of them, to make it to the moon. And of course, Apollo 11, our most famous mission in July of 1969 by the all-Gemini veteran crew consisting, of course, of Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, and Buzz Aldrin performed the first manned lunar landing near the Sea of Tranquility at 8.17 p.m. on July the 20th of 1969. They spent a total of 21 hours, 36 minutes on the lunar surface and spent two hours and 31 minutes outside of their spacecraft, walking on the surface, taking pictures, collecting material samples, and deploying automated scientific instruments while continuously sending black and white television back to Earth. The astronauts returned safely on July 24th. The surface appears to be uh, very, very fine-grained as you get close to it. It's almost like a powder. Ground mass uh, is very fine. Ground mass, step off the lamina. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Of course, what you just heard was a transmission from the surface of the moon heard by literal billions of people on planet Earth. That is Neil Armstrong being the first man to take a step on a body other than Earth in our, you know, in space, in our solar system, in anywhere. And those were the famous, very famous words that he chose to speak after having made his first step or man's first step or any person's first step on the surface of the moon. Apollo 12 then goes uh, on without a hitch, making a landing near the ocean of storms, part of the moon's surface, uh, near the Surveyor 3 craft, which is a craft sent to the moon by the Americans as an unmanned spacecraft just to explore the surface in 1967. They land near that. They spend about seven and a half hours outside of their command module, and they return 75.6 pounds of uh, lunar items to Earth. Now, of course, this brings us to the ill-fated Apollo 13 mission, lucky number 13. Now, I'm not going to talk for an extended period of time on Apollo 13 because it is well-documented, and honestly, if you really want to see the craziness of the Apollo program in general in a really well-made movie. Uh, go watch Apollo 13. It is, it is a fantastic film uh, chronicling the the journey of this particular three-man crew that made their way basically to the moon, and they, they pulled off what was essentially an Apollo 8 mission instead of their uh, intended landing mission where... On the way to the moon, there was an oxygen blowout in one of the things, and they had to use the uh, uh, lunar module 
as a lifeboat as they made orbits around the moon to slingshot their way back to Earth. So, uh, you know, Houston, we have a problem is the most famous famous sort of saying that comes from this particular um, this particular mission. Um, James Lovell, Jack Swigert, and Fred Hayes were the astronauts that uh, were on this crew. And very fortunately, you know, we talk about Apollo 1 being this awful tragedy where men were burned alive and killed. Very fortunately, the Apollo 13 astronauts were able to make it back to uh, to Earth safely. All three of them made it. And uh, unfortunately for them, though, obviously none of them got to uh, none of them got to walk on the moon's surface. You know, be that being you know every Apollo mission after Apollo Eleven, that was the whole point was to get to the moon and walk on the surface and become part of this extremely exclusive fraternity of men that had done something that basically nobody else on Earth would do or ever do. Apollo fourteen then takes uh, takes place later in 1971 in the early part of 1971 and it features a very familiar name a Mr. Alan Shepard Alan Shepard being the first man in United States history to actually make it into space during the Mercury program he was actually meant to be part of the Gemini program as well but came down with Meniere's disease which is a sort of an inner ear situation that like just wrecked his balance this was surgically corrected and he was the command officer on the Apollo 14 mission, and they landed on the moon successfully. They spent nine and a half hours uh, on the moon's surface, returning nearly 100 pounds of samples. Alan Shepard then became the oldest man to walk on the surface of the moon, and if you've ever seen the fun footage of the guy hitting the golf balls on the moon's surface, that's him. Alan Shepard brought a golf club and some golf balls to the moon and hit them, you know, in the name of science. Then Apollo 15 took place, the first extended lunar module and rover, the ones we talked about earlier, the ones that could land and uh, hang around a little bit longer on the lunar surface. They spent 18 and a half hours outside of the, of the, uh, the lunar module. They returned 169 pounds of samples to Earth. Apollo 16 uh, then launched later in 1972. They spent 20 hours outside of their spacecraft and um, returned 207 pounds of, of lunar samples. And finally, the final Apollo mission, Apollo 17, and there were plans to make more Apollo missions after this, but um, the, the development of the Skylab project, as well as some budget cuts towards the end, when I guess everybody was just sick of going to the fucking moon, I guess, Determined that Apollo 17 would be the last Apollo mission instead of some of the uh, the planned Apollo missions afterwards. Uh, Apollo 17 was the only Saturn V night launch uh, launched at the very end of 1972. Uh, sent the first geologist to the moon where they spent 22 hours outside their vehicle and returned 243 pounds of samples to Earth. Overall... The Apollo program returned over 382 kilos, which is 842 pounds of lunar rocks and soil to the Lunar Receiving Laboratory in Houston, Texas. 75% of those samples today are stored at the Lunar Sample Lab facility, which is in Houston, Texas, and was built in 1979. The rocks collected from the moon are extremely old compared to the rocks found on Earth as measured by radiometric dating techniques. They range in age from about 3.2 billion years for the basaltic samples 
um, to about 4.6 billion years for the samples derived from the highlands crust of the moon. As such, they represent samples from a very early period in the development of the solar system, largely absent from those on Earth. One important rock found during the Apollo program is dubbed the Genesis Rock, retrieved by astronauts David Scott and Irwin uh, during the Apollo 15 mission. This rock is composed almost exclusively of the calcium-rich feldspar mineral and norothite, which is believed to be representative of the highland crust. A geochemical component called CREEP, K-R-E-E-P, was discovered by Apollo 12, has no terrestrial known counterpart. Um, almost all the rocks show evidence of impact process effects. Many samples appear to be pitted with micrometeoroid impact craters never seen on Earth because we have a thick atmosphere that stops those sort of things. The moon does not. So even little tiny rocks that fall you know, in, in, in space in general will actually make impact and do damage on the moon's surface. Many of those rocks shown signs of being subjected to high-pressure shock waves that are generate, generated during impact events from some of the bigger ones. Um, basically, analysis of the composition of lunar samples supports the giant impact hypothesis, that hypothesis being that the moon was created through an impact from a larger celestial body into Earth early on in the development of the Earth's surface. All said and done, the Apollo program cost the United States about $30 billion. Uh, originally, the preliminary cost estimate was $7 billion, but that was an extremely unrealistic guess uh, of what could not possibly be determined uh, at all at the beginning, and it got a lot closer to about uh, $30 billion in the end, which is about $160 billion in um, current day dollar values. So what was the legacy of the Apollo program? How do we finally how do we finally bring together these three episodes that we've done this month on space travel? The Apollo program has been called the greatest technological achievement in human history and I would definitely 100% agree with that. Apollo stimulated many areas of technology, leading to over 1,800 spin-off products as of 2015. The flight computer design used in both the lunar and command modules was, along with the Polaris and Minuteman missile systems, the driving force behind early research into integrated circuits. By 1963, Apollo was using 60% of the United States' production of integrated circuits. The crucial difference between the requirements of Apollo and the missile programs was Apollo's much greater need for reliability. While the Navy and Air Force could work around reliability problems by deploying more missiles, the political and financial cost of failure of an Apollo mission was unacceptably high, leading to better and more thorough development of these computer systems. Culturally, the impact uh, was, was huge on planet Earth. The crew of the Apollo 8, which we uh, talked about being just sent straight to the moon uh, almost um, ahead of schedule, sent the first live televised pictures of Earth and the moon back to Earth. If you see some of these pictures over the lunar surface where you see like the half moon cover or the half Earth, I should say, covered up where you know one is uh, during the day and the other part of the Earth is experiencing night. That was taken by the Apollo 8 astronauts on Christmas Eve. An estimated one-quarter of the population of the entire Earth saw either live or delayed 
the Christmas Eve transmission during the ninth orbit of the moon, and an estimated one-fifth of the population of the world watched the live transmission of the Apollo 11 moonwalk a little bit later on. The Apollo program also affected environmental activism in the 1970s due to the photos taken by the astronauts. The most famous, which was taken by the uh, Apollo 17 astronauts, uh, the last Apollo mission, is the blue marble image. You, If you are a person and you have uh, access to pictures of any type, you have seen this picture. It is one of the, probably the most famous pictures ever taken of earth itself this image which was released during a surge in environmentalism became a symbol of the environmental movement as a depiction of earth's frailty vulnerability and isolation amid the vast expanse of space seriously a tiny baby little pale blue dot in the middle of an insanely large ocean that is the harshness and emptiness of outer space Recently, and I'm talking about here in the last 10 plus years or so, um, there have been many other uh, not moon landings with men at all since the Apollo 17 astronauts were still, as of the recording of this podcast and future people listening, hello there. I know that future people, we've probably been to the moon again and Mars and other places uh, like that. But as of the recording of this podcast, the Apollo 17 astronauts were the last men uh, as of yet to still have landed on the moon, but there have been plenty of other lunar missions um, sending unmanned crafts to the moon uh, and uh, lunar probes, which would orbit the moon and take pictures and uh, things of that nature. In 2008, the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency's Selene probe observed evidence of the halo surrounding the Apollo 15 lunar module blast crater while orbiting above the lunar surface. In 2009, NASA's robotic lunar reconnaissance orbiter, orbiting 31 miles above the moon, began photographing the remnants of the Apollo program left on the lunar surface and photographed each site where manned Apollo flights had landed. All of the U.S. flags left on the moon during the Apollo missions were found to be still standing, with the exception, of course, being the one left by the first men on the moon of the Apollo 11 mission, which had blown over during that mission's liftoff from the lunar surface and returned to the command module in lunar orbit. The degree to which these flags retain their original colors remains unknown. And I'm going to end the podcast today with a little quote from the New York Times that was written back in November of 2009. And I think it really kind of brings everything together well in the sort of awe and, and, and mystique of the Apollo program. They wrote in the New York Times opinion column, quote, There's something terribly wistful about these photographs of the Apollo landing sites. The detail is such that if Neil Armstrong were walking there now, we could make him out, make out his footsteps even, like the astronaut footpath clearly visible in the photos of the Apollo 14 site. Perhaps the wistfulness is caused by the sense of simple grandeur in these Apollo missions. Perhaps, too, it's a reminder of the risk we all felt after the eagle had landed, the possibility that it might be unable to lift off again and the astronauts would be stranded on the moon. But it may also be that a photograph like this one is as close as we're able to come to looking directly back into the human past. There the Apollo 11 lunar module sits, parked just where it landed 40 years ago, as if it were still really 40 years ago, and all the time since merely imaginary, unquote. The Apollo missions were extremely successful, 
Um, the only real crazy tragedy was the Apollo 1 mission, which was a, a, an awful, awful failure. And um, the Apollo 13 mission, which was a failure, but the men uh, made it back to Earth uh, safely. And we learned so much, not about, not just about ourselves, but about space and about the moon, that the Apollo program, like we said before, was the most important technological and probably cultural achievement that mankind has really ever gone through that still hasn't been topped even to this day. And now, your very sequitur fact of the week. As I was talking about a little bit earlier in the show, uh, it's not like the Soviets didn't launch things with intention to put their own men on the moon. They never did make a, uh, a, a manned lunar landing like the United States did, but they sent over 20 missions as part of their Luna program to the moon. In fact, during the Apollo 11 mission where men landed on the moon for the first time, the Russians sent Luna 15, one of their unmanned space missions, at the same exact time. In fact, while Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were literally walking on the surface of the moon, the Luna 15 craft from the Soviet Union was crashing into the lunar surface. Uh, that is something that even I didn't know anything about. Literally, while men were walking on the moon uh, in Apollo 11, a Russian spacecraft was crashing into the surface of the moon, not all that far away from where American astronauts were walking on the surface. Interesting. And we finally conclude Space Month on the Knowledge from the Couch podcast with the incredible story of the Apollo Space Program. Guys, thank you so much for joining me today and my uh, sleepless-fueled uh, podcast extravaganza. Sorry this is getting to everybody a little bit later than usual. Uh, for people in podcast land who don't listen to this literally as it gets uh, downloaded, then you don't give a shit when I released it. So uh, thanks, for, thanks for giving me the benefit of the doubt. Guys, you can follow the show on Twitter at the Couch Pod. You can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Steinhauser, on Instagram at Kyle F. Steinhauser. You can find the group on Facebook, search Knowledge from the Couch Podcast, and you can join the hundreds of people who have already liked the page. And when I say hundreds, I mean literally like over a hundred. So you have that going for you as well. You can find this show. Anywhere podcasts can be found, literally anywhere, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Overcast, Radio Public, any place that has podcasts and you can find them, you can find my dulcet tones talking to your ear holes for an extended period of time. When you're there, make sure you rate the show five stars. Even if you don't think it's a five-star effort, I'd truly appreciate it. Uh, leave a review if you would like. I would like to hear your opinion on the show. Um if you are listening to it, you can also tell your friends about the show. I would love some new listeners, and I now have nearly 40 episodes of back catalog of things historically and otherwise that may be interesting to people here, there, and everywhere. Guys, I love you all very, very much. My family away from my actual family, my podcast fam, guys. Next week on June the 1st, a prequel episode for the June episodes will be dropping that day. 
and we will just kind of shoot the shit like we always do and talk about what is happening in the month of June for the show. But guys, until then, I would encourage all of you, if you can, to live long and prosper. Thank you.